1: To help support the making of this podcast, sign up to my Patreon.com site, where you'll get to see me in person every week. Who could ask for more? Over the past month, my weekly videos have covered a whole swathe of history and current affairs. I've done one on D-Day, another on buried Viking treasure, one on migration and the Kurgans. And last week was about the search for heroes. Anyway, I'm sure you get the picture. It's a whole smorgasbord of fascinating topics. To get your hands on it, go to patreon.com and search for me, Neil Oliver. It'd be great to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. Properly understanding our place in the cosmos, in the universe. In this podcast, we're heading to a place that was mad, bad and dangerous to know. In the late 18th century, the deep interior of Scotland was still wild and perilous. In the famed wilderness of Rannoch Moor sits a mountain known to some as the Fairy Hill of the Caledonians. To others, it's the hill of the constant storm. It was here that cutting-edge scientists of the day came to push the boundaries. Standing on the shoulders of Isaac Newton's brilliance, they helped shine a light on the world we live in today. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles.
2: In the last podcast, we stood at the centre of time and place, looking out over one of the greatest cities in the world. Where are we this week?
1: Ah, Paul, after the densely populated urban refinement of London uh, in the last episode, now we're heading to the other extreme. We're in the wilds of the Scottish Highlands, off to bag ourselves a monroe, carrying precision scientific equipment over rugged terrain and up one of Britain's tallest mountains. We're in Perthshire, measuring the weight of the world on the slopes of Shehalion. Well, I would say, Paul, that this week we are looking at one of the most beautiful, picturesque, probably one of the most photographed mountains in Scotland. It's Shehalion in Perthshire. Shehalion's a word that, it doesn't sound like it's spelt <laughs> If you see it written down you might struggle with it It's a corruption of a Gallic word There's a lot of debate around it Some people say that Shehalion means or is Gallic for the fairy hill of the Caledonians the, the Caledonians being amongst the tribes that the Romans encountered and wrote about when they came to our part of the world 2,000 years ago So the fairy hill of the Caledonians. Others say it means the hill of the constant storm, which is quite fascinating. There's the idea of a a spirit or spirits that that maintain a constant storm at the top of the mountain. So Shehalion, it's a much romanticised idea, a much romanticised name and a much romanticised place. So you kind of take your pick, the hill of the constant storm or the fairy hill of the Caledonians.
2: Is it in the Highlands?
1: Well, yes, you could say Perthshire, Stirling where I am, Stirling's close to Perth, and we are known as the gateway to the Highlands. So yes, by the time you're at Shehalion, you can justifiably say that you're in the Highlands, certainly at the start of it. Shehalion is one of the sentinels, one of the mountains that you might say keeps watch over... Rannoch Moor. Rannoch Moor is, is whether people know it by name, they will have seen it in countless movies. Uh, this Harry Potter, you know, the train cutting through the landscape. But you know, there's been many the aerial view of, of Rannoch Moor. It's a, it's a, brown, peaty, loch spattered wilderness, and and Shehalion is one of the one of the mountains that, that keeps watch over it. Shehalion is one of the class of mountains in Scotland called a Munro. Uh, there's 282 Munros in Scotland. A Munro is uh, any mountain 3,000 feet high or taller, and at three and a half thousand feet, Shehalion is comfortably a Munro. And there's a there's a whole pastime of Munro bagging that's been going on here for oh I don't know a lifetime. People that try to climb all of the Munros, and many people do. There's people out there that have climbed all the Munros more than once. It's quite the obsession for some folk.
2: Do you feel effects at 3,500 feet? Is it considered high? Uh,
1: Well, um, if you climb Shahalian, Shahalian's a kind of a gateway (laughs) mountain. Uh, For people that are beginners, uh, Shahalian's regarded, and because it's a Monroe and people want to bag Monroes, Shahalian's regarded as a a good one to, to take as your first. It looks like a hill, but it climbs like a mountain. Uh, and, and once you get up, it, it it does. You feel it in your lungs. I mean, you're not. It's you're not getting into, you know, you're not getting into altitude sickness at that height. But you f- you feel it. It's high, and you're certainly exposed to weather. You know, it's colder. It's one of the hills, you know, upon which you can get caught out. Lots of frost, shattered rock, and you can turn an ankle or break a leg uh, quite easily, especially when you're tired and coming down a lot of people hurt themselves walking back down from the hills because your legs are tired by that point and you you know you make mistakes or your you know your knee or your ankle kind of gives out and it's quite often when people drop their guard because they've already been at the summit and they they're just coming <laughs> trotting back down it's it's quite often then that you get caught out if you search for Shehalion and images, it'll come up with the view for which it's famous, which is to say, if you look at Shehalion from the west, across Loch Ranach, it has this perfect triangular, equilateral triangular volcanic shape. It looks like a child's drawing of a mountain. But it's all about the angle. For most of the rest of the positions from which you would view Shehalion, it's more of a sort of a whale-backed ridge. It's just from that one particular viewpoint across the loch from the west, and it takes on this shape. And believe it or believe it not, it's in the love letter because it's that shape that attracted scientists to Shehalion in the latter part of the 18th century, specifically scientists who were keen to weigh planet Earth for the first time. I mean, I ask you, you know, who gets out of their bed in the morning Thinking about calculating the weight of planet Earth But, but, but there you go It's really, in Scotland at that time, Scotland was, it was in its enlightenment period Writing, thinking, inventing, uh, philosophising It was a time when Scotland burned bright I've said before, at that time, Voltaire, the French philosopher, said it's to Scotland that we look for our idea of civilization. and in amongst all that heat of of thinking and and creativity and invention, those of a scientific and, and mathematical bent were paying a lot of attention to, basically to understanding our place in the universe, the place of planet Earth in the solar system, in the galaxy, in the cosmos, they were buzzing with ideas, And of course, that comes at the end, really, of thousands of years of people looking up at the stars, looking at the sun and the moon, maybe noticing that some of the lights in the skies were planets, which are different from stars. Planet is a word that means wanderer. And so some of them would have noticed that amongst the stars that are like fixed, there were planets that move. And from the time of the Ness of Brodgar that, that we've talked about in the Love Letter and the Stones of Stennis and Stonehenge and Avebury, and all of these places are a product of people looking up at the sky and aligning stones on particular times of the year. The Great Standing Stones, the Circles of Stone, they're very often, they have entrances and openings aligned on the position of the sun at a time of solstice or of equinox likewise the positions of the moon for thousands of years people had become aware of the repeating patterns of the sun and the moon and they had been putting stones and other objects in place as part of tracking that even the the great chamber tombs the tombs that, that were built by the Neolithic farmers to house their dead often the entrances are aligned on midwinter's day or, or midsummer's day because they knew or it seemed to matter to them that on one day of the year the passageway leading into the tomb would be illuminated. Now you can fantasize and romanticize about that to your heart's content. Were they thinking about the light of the Sun bringing life and warmth back to the dead? Was it part of them trying to make sense of the, the circle of life? On a given day they knew that sunlight itself, the light of the rising sun, would reach into the passageway where their ancestors were. So by the time you get to the 18th century, we were a long way down the road as scientists, as a scientific population now, of trying to understand our place in the universe. And so the desire to understand the mass, the weight, just how big was planet Earth? By the 2nd century AD, Ptolemy, the astronomer Ptolemy, he had come up with a scheme to explain the orbits of the planets. And he imagined, if you like, each of the planets being in a kind of a a dance with an invisible partner. So he imagined the planets being like the visible part of a, of a, a waltzing pair spinning around each other while at the same time going around the Earth. Because looking up at the night sky, you do tend to feel that Earth is a fixed place and that everything else is moving around it. And so Ptolemy came up with the Ptolemaic system to explain the patterns. And it was completely bogus. But the point was it worked. As an explanation for the repeating patterns, the Ptolemaic system made sense. It was all about complicated spinning within spinning, revolutions within revolutions, and it had been good enough. The Ptolemaic system was helping mariners find their way about the planet and all the rest of it. It made sense in and of itself, but it wasn't the truth. But then by 1543, Nikolai Copernicus had really, more than anything else, he had intuited the truth. Copernicus wasn't really working from scientific observation, but he had simply understood the reality which was that, us included, everything's revolving around the sun. Obviously not everything is revolving around the sun, but our solar system, it's a solar system, it's based on the sun. And Copernicus understood that. It was later on, and other scientists, the Kepler and people, properly, from the basis of observation, got the whole picture. But there had been this constant evolution and it was speeding up in the 1500s the 1600s, the 1700s we were galloping faster and faster towards proper understanding of everything that was going on Isaac Newton uh, I mean I I don't know what the league table's like but Isaac Newton might be the cleverest person that's ever lived if he's not the cleverest he's probably in the top one (laughs) Um, he's got the kind of genius that, that makes you wonder why you bother getting out of bed in the morning He's so clever about everything. And it, amongst other things, obviously everyone knows, Newton had understood the concept of gravity. Famously, you know, the falling apple that he watched. And he thought, why why does a falling object like an apple, why does it fall towards the earth? Why doesn't it just float off in another direction? And, and it was from observations like that and from the thinking of his incredible gigantic brain that he simply understood that there was a force which was gravity, which was holding everything in place from the smallest to the largest. He also understood, without ever having had the opportunity to read it, it was his idea (laughs) that every object from smallest to largest exerts a pull, however infinitesimal, upon every other object. Now obviously, tiny objects, the gravitational pull that they exert is undetectable, but it's there. But then, of course, you've got the gravitational pull of big objects like planets, like the sun. And Newton understood all of that. And be- because of that, now here's where we finally sort of get to the foothills of, of Shehalion. Isaac Newton supposed that if you were to build a tower on the side of a big mountain and suspend from the top of that tower a rope with a pendulum, like a plumb line, and let it hang till it was still, he theorised that the gravitational pull of the mountain, of, of all that rock, would cause the pendulum to move slightly out of the vertical. So that instead of hanging straight down, it would be just pulled a little bit towards the mountain. But interestingly, you know, not even Isaac Newton was perfect. He didn't think there would be a mountain big enough on Earth to show that. He believed that it would happen, but that the movement of the pendulum would be too small to measure. Um, There's actually a line from um, from his writings that says, Nay, whole mountains will not be sufficient to produce any sensible effect. That's in the Principia. A mountain of an hemispherical figure, three miles high and six broad, will not, by its attraction, draw the pendulum two minutes out of the true perpendicular. And it is only in the great bodies of the planets that these forces are to be perceived. Mount Everest, whatever, don't matter. He didn't think there was anything big enough on the planet that although it would be pulling the pendulum out of alignment, he thought it would be too small to measure. So that was where he left that. He he knew it was theoretically possible, but he didn't think it was demonstrable. So now we get to 1772, after Newton's time. And by this point, the Royal Society, they had decided that the experiment was worth conducting. In spite of what Newton predicted, they reckoned, no, let's do it. And so a guy called Charles Mason... uh, Have you heard of the Mason-Dixon line? In America? Yeah. The Mason-Dixon line was was a line that separated or or drew a boundary between the slave-owning states of the South... And the free states of the north. That was the Mason-Dixon line. Dixon being the other surveyor. So Mason already had that under his belt when he was sent out to look for a suitable mountain for the experiment and he chose Shehalion. He alighted upon the shape of Shehalion and he liked it because of that shape that it has from across Loch Ranach. thought if you were going to have a mountain that you're going to build a tower on, ideally you want it to be this perfect triangular shape you know, so that you can get the, the best effect, he thought. So he reported back, and although he had found the mountain, he wasn't the man to do the experiment. That job went to the then Astronomer Royal, a guy called the Reverend, he was a churchman, the Reverend Neville Maskelyne, And he departed from Greenwich in 1774. Now, it's all well and good saying that Scotland was in the thick of its enlightenment and, you know, in places like Edinburgh, everyone was terribly clever in coming up with all sorts of smashing ideas. But Scotland, the place in 1774, was regarded as a bit lawless and intimidating. We've covered the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745 that culminates in Culloden, another of the places from which there's a love letter. And in the aftermath of that Jacobite Rebellion, the clan system was, was smashed. In putting down and and ensuring that there would never be another rebellion, the government smashed the the Highlands to bits. Almost genocidal in its cruelty. Although the clans were warlike and fought amongst themselves and got up to all sorts of violence and treachery, they were an order. They were a system of order. Rough and ready, and maybe not to our tastes, but it, it held society together. But by 1774, you know, a generation after Culloden The system had fallen apart And there was a a great deal of lawlessness Especially away from the cities So Edinburgh would be one thing But out into the wilds of Perthshire, quite another So Maskelyne was pretty intimidated by by the thought of coming up to Scotland So just to show you how intimidated He sailed He sailed to Perth Right, so he departed Greenwich by ship and he didn't even attempt to go overland, So he got himself to Perth by boat. And then he headed out from there. But think about what it was like for them. I mean, hillwalkers today, with all your Gore-Tex and your lovely modern boots, you would struggle up Shahalian if you're not used to it. Well, Maskelyne went up there in 1774 in the springtime. And him and his team, because he took people with him, they had to move all this cumbersome equipment that they needed for surveying. So ropes, chains, theodolites, a telescope, heavy, heavy gear, full of heavy glass and heavy stuff, awkward. And they had to get this up onto Shehalion. They arrived at a point on on the side of the mountain and they decided it was close enough to level, but they had to level it out, moving rock and and all the rest of it. And then they had to build a boffy, a shelter with a tower on it, to house the equipment and to be the base for the experiment. So getting up to anything like that on the sides of Shahali in springtime or not is a big ask. Physically very challenging, but nonetheless, Masculin and his team they stayed there for months. They were there from July until September, and they started measuring. They didn't just do the the Newton experiment, the Isaac Newton experiment. They took thousands upon thousands of spot heights around the mountain, and. The job of putting it all together back at base was a, a mathematician called Charles Hutton. And he looked at this dot-to-dot of, of thousands of spot heights and he had the bright idea of drawing a line to connect up all the ones of the same height. And that created the contour line system that you see on the Ordnance Survey maps. So that that didn't exist until that point. So he, just by simply by drawing the dots of all the spot heights, he, he created the, the first contour line map of Shahalian and part of the surrounding area. But then, of course, they got to the main event, which was to suspend the rope with the weight on the end, the giant plumb line. And wouldn't you know it, against Isaac Newton's expectations, it was a measurable effect. The pendulum was indeed pulled out of the vertical to an extent that they could measure it. Now, the mathematics around it is something beyond me. All I know is that back at Greenwich, with their measurements, they were able to calculate that the Earth weighed approximately 5 million million tonnes. And years later, you know, in the modern era with computers and satellites and all the rest of it, we've got a better calculation. But they weren't a million miles away. So the experiment conducted in 1774 by Maskell and Neville Maskell and his people was good enough. And the the truly awe-inspiring footnote is that although Isaac Newton had decided that nobody would find a mountain big enough and that the effect wouldn't be measurable on planet Earth, he did a sort of of back-of-an-envelope calculation of what he thought planet Earth weighed. And he reckoned it was probably about 5 million million tonnes. <laughs> so, uh, Isaac Newton was so smart, he didn't even have to show his working. In amongst his cleverness, he more or less intuited what the weight of planet Earth must be. And it moves me that the job of calculating how much planet Earth weighed, it, not only did it happen in the British Isles, you know, this is where it happened in this archipelago, but it happened on a mountain in Perthshire which is, you can practically see it from my bedroom window. You know, I can see towards the hills from my house in Stirling. And the fact that that awesome, the awesome significance of calculating the weight of planet Earth was done here, I find profoundly moving. And it laid the groundwork then. They were off and running at that point. Soon enough, they were calculating how much the sun must weigh, the moon, other planets besides. The work on Shehalion... The Fairy Hill of the Caledonians, the Hill of the Constant Storm, was a massive step forward towards properly understanding our place in the cosmos, in the universe.
2: From Isaac Newton to the experiments on Shehalion, it would be about a hundred years. Since then, scientific knowledge has just sped up even more.
1: Uh, Well, yes, it is. You have to think, I suppose, that thousands of years ago, there would have been men and women of genius who had, in their isolation, extraordinarily brilliant ideas. But those ideas sort of lived and died with them in a world say before writing or for all sorts of reasons their contributions came too soon and were lost you know a spark of genius is only a spark and it needs to be surrounded by dry tinder before it can catch and become a fire that sustains and lasts and makes a difference and it took all sorts of things obviously when you've got population on the rise you've got more and more people alive and thinking at the same time and in a place like Edinburgh or like Paris, or like London, or like Athens, where you have lots of clever people alive and thinking and communicating at the same time, it builds. You know, there's a momentum that comes, and that's why innovation is getting faster and faster. Knowledge begets knowledge. Clever people beget clever people. I've always been fascinated to think, who were the Isaac Newtons that lived 10,000 years ago? and had all the capability of thinking the most astonishing thoughts, but their thoughts couldn't survive, couldn't outlive them. All these unnamed, unknown geniuses that just came and went, like the briefest flashing of a bright light, you know, like a sparking neuron in a brain, but all on its own, it wasn't enough. People, as well as being geniuses, people like Isaac Newton, they needed the company of other people for the spark that they are to catch and to mean something. But by the time we get to masculine and pertinent and these endeavours in the latter third of the 18th century, you're getting to that critical mass of enough clever people in touch with one another at the same time that you really start to make the difference.
2: been extraordinary I mean it feels more like an expedition than a scientific experiment
1: Oh that, that's another that's another thing you know we can you know you pop your phone in your pocket and you've got all the kind of GPS technology that you know that a person could want just as a kind of a free gift that comes with your phone but, but these these guys had to drag chains heavy metal chains ropes all the kit was cumbersome all packed in boxes and trunks and chests and it had to be manhandled up a mountainside <laughs> and then they had to build build a base. All of that had to be done. So much of it would have been the sort of thing that for people like us, we go, oh, do you know what, I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered working how much the planet weighs today. I'll leave that for somebody else some other day. It's too far and it's too heavy. And it's too muddy and slippy. <laughs> but they just did it. In their inadequate clothing, and their inadequate footwear, there they were. Determined to nudge the boundary of of ignorance back a little bit further.
2: It's incredible, isn't it? They were out in the wilds, hoping to prove something that they suspected might not be possible. Mm. And the pendulum moves.
1: I know. I know, I mean, and it it is an experiment. You could replicate it, you know, you could go to Shehali and the effect will still be there. Build a tower tall enough, hang a rope long enough with a weight on the end and the sheer mass of the planet will have that gravitational effect on it. It's happening all the time. They just went out and found a relatively simple way of observing it. It's knowing of the existence of people like Isaac Newton that that thought occurred to him. Imagine living inside a brain that works like that, that thinks of those kinds of thoughts. Most of us just look at the world, you see an apple fall from a tree, you just move on. Oh, an apple fell from a tree. But for someone like Sir Isaac Newton, they think, why? Why did that happen and not something else? What's the explanation for that? And what's the wider meaning? They're one in a million, these people. With their strange and magical brains. Simmering with the steadily building heat of technological change and advance, the natural energy of rivers, mining for minerals, coke and iron ore, a heady mix of human ingenuity, innovation and entrepreneurism, all helping to power innovation. The first cast iron bridge anywhere in the world, the place that played a vital part in the birth of the Industrial Revolution. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine you could try my book It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld Neil Oliver's love letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films Music is by Malcolm Goldie Social media producer is Oscar CFR Additional research is by Evie, Lucian Archie and Teddy Finance is by Catherine and Trudy Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these aisles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.